You're listening to the Rent Roll Radio Show with Sterling Chapman. Hey guys, Sterling here. Welcome back to the second half of Albert Pelaché's interview. If you didn't catch the first half, please stop and go back to the previous episode because there's some really valuable content. We really enjoyed this entire interview and know that you will too. Thanks. Can you tell us a story about your your highest highlight, your like your your, your best you, your most successful knock it out of the park deal, and then about one that that didn't go well? Maybe like your worst horror story, whether it was a you know a terrible eviction or or lost money on a deal or something. Okay, so let's start with the worst one because it's not that it really I didn't lose money on it. It was really uh, well. I'll tell you what happened. I'm reading the income investments section of the newspaper, and I see an eightplex for sale about two blocks from my home. And it was in a, a little, a slightly, it was in a lower income section of sure. town, right? But I was, it was forty thousand, is what the guy was asking for eight units. And I thought to myself, this is incredible. I'm paying forty thousand per unit, right? Mm-hmm. Here's eight units, and I realize it's low-income property, but this is incredible. So it's a Sunday morning. I'm reading it, and I call the guy, and I do my same thing, right? I jump in the car, and I drive over there, and I'm so excited, and I fill out the purchase agreement for full price, mm-hmm. and I give it to him. And I'm thinking, and he's like, well, I got I got one other guy, you know, coming that had called me too and he's coming over and I'll let you know. And I'm thinking, mm-hmm. well, how can I lose this? I just offered, offered him for a price, yeah. you know? And I go to get in my car and I see a guy pull up behind me and, um, you know, he's going in and I'm just waiting for the good news. And when I talk to the guy later on in the day, he says, yeah, no, I'm, I'm really not too sure, you know? And I said, well, well, what's there not to be sure about? I gave you a full price offer. And I kind of thought he was baiting me into a bidding war. Uh-huh. You know, and I was willing to do a little bit, but I didn't want to. Right. I was only excited because it was such, such a, a good, good deal. deal. You know, I don't want to end up paying too much. So I don't know what, I, you know, I tried to be as nice as I could. I tried to seal the deal, but the guy just wouldn't commit to me. And uh, in the end, he, he said, no, nah, I sold it to the other guy. And I was like. The one that got away. Huh? The one that got away. I was devastated. That hurts so bad. <laughs> I, I cried, probably literally, <laughs> for so many months after that because, you know, it was the loss in my mind of multiplying those eight rents out. Um, I figured my note on that thing would be 300 a month, and I think I could have rented the, the eight units for at least 300 a month, you know. It was like a $2,000. That, at that time, would have been a, a lifestyle game changer to me. Yeah, I remember uh, I remember the first fourplex I lost, and it was so beautiful, and it was fully rented out, didn't need any improvements, $2,000 a month cash flow, and I was like a couple grand short of a multi- multiple offer scenario. And I was, I was devastated. I mean, I was in, I was like depressed for a week. Look, I, 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 I was depressed for three months. Yeah, it hurt, you know? Yeah. I will say that later, now that I'm thinking, I'm telling the story out of order. It was the, it was the pain of that that actually did motivate me to get more aggressive. 
that three-plex story that I just told you about calling that guy, that actually came after being beat out of that four-plex. Yeah. But it was the motivation from that pain. You know, they say uh, pain is the fuel for change. Well, that, that's what got me going. I'll tell you, I learned a serious lesson from that, too. Um, I don't nickel and dime people anymore. I mean, I'm all for getting a good deal, but right. if I see something and the numbers were, the, you know, the second to last fourplex we got, I saw it pop on the realtor at 9 p.m., and I woke the real estate agent up the next morning at 6 a.m. with a full offer saying, look, I'm not using another one. You can get to a cop and put in a full offer. Just have them accept it before lunch. And she's like, oh, great. Okay. Yeah. But I mean, I would, I wasn't going to, uh, you know what I'm saying? I wasn't going to go through that again. Yeah. It's, it's not worth it. I, I tell you, uh, if we get to that, you know, I can tell these stories all day because I, I love them. But uh, I do want to say that. Maybe several months later, I went and drove by the eightplex, mm-hmm. and um, I saw the guy there who had scooped me. And I got out and I said, "Hey, my name's Albert." And I told him the story that I had gone in there, and I said, "I'm just curious, man. How did how did you get this?" He said, "Well, when he learned when things were that cheap, that he always actually offered more." than the asking yeah. price just to sweeten the deal and make sure nobody else got it. So he was a little bit more of a seasoned investor than me. Yeah. And he got it for 42. Yeah. <laughs> Two grand. I just shook my head, man. But then I said, all right, man, you know, you, you beat me fair and square. And this is an important lesson yeah. that, that I'll, I'll uh, learn in my life. Uh, okay. So the best deal. So remember, uh, go, let's go back to the beginning of the story. I get the big long list of properties and all I could really swing was the two fourplexes. So instead of sitting on that information, I really shared it with my neighbor across the street. I, I knew she had been, maybe she had a rental unit here and there and I took it over to her and I said, Hey, Cindy, here's this big list of properties and I can't buy anymore. And so I, I shared the information with two or three friends and she went, she bought it duplex and a couple other people I knew bought a duplex and you know that was that I couldn't get them at least somebody got them and a few years later you know she she called me she lived directly across the street she says hey Albert my uh, my my handyman works for this landlord who's who's got his building for sale you know it's a fourplex it's over on South Foster and blah 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 this and that and she says you know I just wanted to tell you in case you wanted it and uh it was a fourplex for 175 grand. It was a little bit out of my zone, not price range. It was a, it was a great price. Just geographically, it was, you know, people on the, on the podcast might say, oh my God, listen to this guy. It was maybe five miles away instead of three, <laughs> three miles away. It was still pretty close. And I went over there and it, it was, it was pretty nice. It was just those classic townhouses that they were building, you know, in the eighties. They, you see them everywhere. It's, they're slightly, Jog different from each other, you know. I have the the little common walls and and all. And man, I just instantly moved on that and and bought that that fourplex. But but here was the deal not long after that, uh, Hurricane Katrina had hit New Orleans. So, what this is 2006, Mm -hmm. and so I've been in it six years, I guess, by that point. And I had noticed that the guy behind me owned uh, there was a sixplex behind this fourplex. And he, he was converting them to condominiums and selling them individually. Mm-hmm. And I kind of, you know, wrinkled my nose at it and 
and thought about it. But when um, when Hurricane Katrina hit in New Orleans, uh, you know, 60, 75 miles down the road, Baton Rouge had such a huge influx of, of people looking for property. Sure. I said, hey, I'm going to check into doing what that guy's doing. Maybe I'm going to convert these to, to condominiums. So once again, I called my realtor, you know, Vicki, the one I've been talking about. I should just give her a plug, you know, Vicki right. Spurlock at Locations Realty. And she, um, I just said, what are people looking for in a condo? And she says, oh, you probably got to put real wood floors in and this and that. And um, I said, okay, I'm, I'm going to just fix these up and um, sell them as condominiums. And she says, okay. So she told me what to do with them. I think I spent ten grand per unit. Didn't need much, you know, mm-hmm. just a little bit of. You paid one hundred seventy five for the whole. Paid one seventy five, and I had been renting them, you mm-hmm. know, for a little bit. Can't remember what they were renting for. Maybe eight hundred, and uh, so I, I spent another forty on the building mm-hmm. and really made it each unit look, you know, something that an owner would want instead sure. of a, a renter, and and she started selling them. Uh, for one twenty-five each. Oh, wow. Now I uh, I didn't want to pay the capital gains tax, so I really started shopping, you know, for other stuff to buy. And I had I had come across a, a twelve-unit complex mm-hmm. that was uh, two hundred and seventy grand, and uh, I, I needed a down payment for that. So the first couple, now it took longer than I thought. Four units post Hurricane Katrina. I thought it'd be in and out in three months. It really took 12 months. A lot of the the sales wouldn't, you know, people would uh, sign a contract and and it would fall through and and then you lost another month's time. It it, it took the whole year to, to get rid of all four. But anyway, I ended up essentially getting 500,000 out of that building that, you know, only had just a little over 200000 in. Yeah. And I was able to reinvest all 300000 of that gain into just a host of other properties, you know, because that was the first big chunk of, of capital that I was getting that wasn't related to, to that, um, whatever you call that little method of, you know, rehabbing and yeah. refinancing. You know, I was really in a position where I could look at bigger things and 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 know that these as these units were were coming up, I was going to be able to roll them them over. And just a little side note: one one of the units, uh, one of the buildings that I wanted to buy, it was a, a fourplex and a duplex that this guy had, and they were back to back to each other. And he was ready to sell them, and my sales were really dragging on these condos, maybe like the last one or two sales. And I didn't want to let the deal go. So that's when my uh, 1031 guy said, taught me about doing a reverse 1031. Have you you never heard of that? So, you know, I was like, what do you mean a reverse 1031? (laughs) He says, well, we can buy the new buildings first, put them in escrow. You don't actually own them technically. Then when your condos sell, you take the money and they unwind the transaction somehow. So you you get the money mm-hmm. later, but you you buy the buildings first. That's interesting. I, yeah, I it was more expensive. Was yeah, it was a reverse ten thirty one. So they ended up going in an LLC. You know, to this day, those buildings are listed as you know eight eighty six LLC something like that. 
and, and but the guy was able to do the whole thing, and, and and so all of the profits from those four condos ended up being reinvested in in more units. I think those parlayed. I bought, ended up buying three twelve plexes, and then and then uh, the fourplex and the duplex. So it was like thirty. I think it's forty units. Oh wow! With with that with that money. Oh nice. So now I was a player. So you mentioned you had uh, a commercial strip center, yeah, and the salons. Now the sal- tell, tell us about those. The salons. Do you own the real estate that they're on? I do not. So again, going back to Hurricane Katrina was really the thing that changed the game for me. Prices of real estate in Baton Rouge just shot through the roof. Yeah, and and even people who didn't know what their property was worth now knew it was worth a lot more. Right. So it just made it hard to find a, a cash-producing deal. That, mm-hmm. that was the bottom line. And I, and I was just, I was kind of disgusted. You know, I was thinking, I'm really just getting going here. Mm-hmm. And, and there's nothing that makes any sense anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, what am I going to do? I'm, I'm in the flow, you know. And, yeah, and I could yeah. just see the game I was playing ha- had changed. So a friend of mine um, who owns a chain of pizza, pizza restaurants in Arkansas at the at the pizza conference, uh, he came across some guys that were also on chains of uh, pizza stores, but they were also getting into uh, this salon mall concept. Okay. Uh, and you know, I had never heard of it. And he said, "Yeah, they're building these out in Houston." And um, I, I guess I had been complaining to him that you know, what am I going to do now? Right. And, and he said, "I think you might be interested in this." I said, "Yeah, it sounds intriguing." So when he got back from the convention. He flew to Houston. I drove to Houston, picked him up at the airport, and those up, his friends said we could go check out, you know, what they were up to. So we go to Houston, and um, we go to these things. What they were doing is they were taking uh, all the abandoned grocery stores, you know, all the mm-hmm. sort of mid-sized grocery stores at the time had started to become devastated by Walmart, and they was just empty, you know, these big, giant, twenty and 30,000-square-foot pieces of commercial real estate and, and the landlords couldn't couldn't rent them. Right. And so what they were doing, these guys, they were getting these huge upfront payments from the landlord and they were taking the money and they were carving out the space into little mini hair salons, self-contained, mm-hmm. with a shampoo chair and a sink and a station and locking the door. And they were mm-hmm. kind of making them look like little villages with <laughs> false roofs and and stuff like that. And, and they were using the, the grocery store landlord's money to build them. And then they were renting the suites to independent hairstylists to, okay. to come in and, and rent the things. And we get to Houston and we see the, the guys, you know, the ones they were doing in these grocery stores. But then we noticed they were all over town. They had, there was uh, one company, Salons in the Park. They had been doing this for 20 years. Uh, one of them was 14,000 square feet. You know, it had 70 little mini salons, you know, inside. Uh, so it was not a new concept, but it was it was new to me. Baton Rouge didn't have one at the time. So I came back to Baton Rouge and started just looking for some space to lease. And I was going to check it out, see how the numbers would work. And my, my friend who lived in Fayetteville... He, he decided that really his town was too small to, to really, you know, have the demand to, to make it work. Mm-hmm. But uh, I ended up leasing 5,000 square feet in a, in a 
like a power center, a mm-hmm. strip center that had a Michaels and a Steinmart, that sort of thing. And I just went in there and built all the walls and the plumbing and I had 18 little mini suites inside of here. And uh, everybody in Houston said, wow, there's none of these in your city. And they said, man, you're going to be full before the day you're open. And mm-hmm. I said, oh, that's awesome. You know, I, I need that to happen. And so I opened and I, I would hold open houses. And, man, 50 people would come and check it out. And I was just thinking Monday morning, these things going to be leased up. And then crickets. <laughs> it was, it was, it was just too newfangled of a concept being the first in your city yeah and and nobody was renting them i ended up having maybe two or three rented but man for the first year i couldn't rent about six of them and i was really thinking this is the biggest mistake i've ever made in my life because all the leasehold improvements Mm -hmm. you know that's a bank just is not going to lend money on that uh, you, you know, there's it's not really collateral, and um, it cost me at the time about two hundred and fifty grand to build those things out with all the furniture and plumbing mm-hmm. and electrical and permits and plans and everything that you needed to do it. And uh, I really thought, man, my greed really got me here because uh, I, I borrowed against my property to, uh, to come up with the, with the two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. You know, thinking, oh, these things will be rented day right. one. And it slowly caught on, you mm-hmm. know, the second year. And where is it? It's in the Hammond Air uh, Shopping Center. Okay. Yeah, so uh, I did that in 2006. Uh, I've been owning that for 13 years now. And now they're they're all over town, you know. Uh-huh. There's, there's probably five or six of them, you know, here, here in Baton Rouge. But it turned around, and it was very similar to landlording. You, you know, you're yeah. just renting something else. Actually, probably less headaches because... You know, it's less bathrooms to go sure. things to go wrong, and I am a tenant too, so my landlord is responsible for the roof leaks and, and right. things like that. So, you know, it's not an asset in the traditional way uh, of owning your own property. You know, mm-hmm. one day um, it's going to evaporate, and in, in, you know, all that money I spent there would. Well, I mean, I would certainly call it an asset if it, an entity that yeah, generates. Yeah, it, it is capital. different. You know, it's yeah. it's, 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 a, it's a different animal. Right. It's nice to have both. Yeah. Uh, you know, property owning your own property is a better long term bet. Sure. Uh, but you know, the cash flow is is nice on that. So so I ended up a few years later. You know, once I was full, and then I had a waiting list. The space next to me was vacant. I took another 5,000 square feet. So now I have 10,000 square feet. And there's um, 32 salons in there, 32 little mini hair salons in there. And I stay, you know, mostly uh, pretty close to uh, full, uh, maybe sometimes 95% to 100% occupancy on an ongoing basis. And, yeah, it's still sort of in my in my space. So I understand renting space and what do you have to do to take care of people. Yeah. And and I did want to share that with you and anybody else thinking about it. You know, earlier I made the the comment that you're a custodian of property. The other thing is really deep down, you're, you're taking care of people. You know, you're, you're putting a roof over their head. And, um, and so I really respond to my tenants. I really see is what I'm doing is, is providing a service to them. So, 
I know a lot of landlords, uh, I hear stories about, oh yeah, my, you know, my AC went out and it was two weeks before my yeah. landlord. I, I just, I can't even get my mind around right. that. Right. I'm, we're going out instantly. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah. You know, we, your roof's leaking. Your roof's going to get fixed before mine at home. I'm, I'm the same way. <laughs> Casey gets mad at me because a lot of our tenants have granite and she's been wanting granite countertops for a year and a half now. <laughs> Look, I'm, at home in my bedroom, I have a flat roof on my house and it, you know, over the years it's, it's leaked a lot. And, you know, I'm making my wife move buckets around, you know, and do I call the roofer to fix our house? No. Everybody else's roof gets fixed before, yeah, before I've, I've had tenants when I bought a property tell me they were moving out at the end of the month and I went in and fixed everything and they go, Hey, actually, never mind. I'm not leaving. We're leaving because that stuff's been sitting up for eight months. Yeah. But now that we know somebody's going to take care of it, we're, we have no reason to go. Yeah. So, uh, what advice do you have for our listeners? It sounds like you've had a lot of a lot of ups and downs. And, and what's what's the one thing you would have to say for an investor or somebody that's on the fence or somebody who's just getting started and looking to scale? Well, what's your what's your best advice? It's a long game. Yeah. You know, real estate is the long game. I know a lot of people want to get rich fast. You know, even when I was acquiring all those units, you know, a hundred bucks per door, that doesn't really add up to that much money. You start, you're, you're managing a lot of property and taking care of a lot of people. And, and remember I said earlier on, I was deluded about how long these things I thought would hold up. You know, you, you spend several thousand dollars on a, on a paint job and, you know, three years later, it's already not looking so good. Yeah. And, and that was a, really a surprise to me. So the expenses are higher than you think. Uh, and I don't think that's a reason not to get in, in it. But if you if you think, yeah, you're going to be rich in three years or five years, I don't really think it works out. I do think a lot of landlords lie about how much money they're making in property. And I think people have this idea that, oh, man, you got this many units you know, you must be rich and stuff. And, and, but you're taking care of a lot. Uh, hey, and let's not leave out the fact of all the mortgage payments and, and, right. and insurance payments and property taxes that you're paying. You know, a lot. It comes in, but it, it, goes, it goes out. out. And it, it is a, it's a tough business to live out of. Like, mm-hmm. if you're trying to just live out of your own rental units, you really have to have a lot of units if, yeah. if you aspire to, you know, any kind of a you know, upper scale lifestyle. So uh, I really think you need something cash producing that goes along with it. Either it is your job or your career, or you, you have some other, I don't want to, I hate to call it a real business, but something that makes cash flow. Sure. And then, and then you use the, the real estate as the, mm-hmm. as the investment vehicle. Yeah. And, and I would say if you have a, 15 or 20 year time horizon, it's probably better than, than thinking you, you're going to be able to, you know, quit everything you're doing in five years. Or right. I, I think for most people, it would be pretty tough, no matter how aggressive you are, is to have enough in five years to, to quit whatever you're doing, you know, sure. that, that's making, making the money. Uh, so if you have a long horizon, there's nothing like it. Yeah, because it's it's a great wealth building tool. I mean, better than that, anything else. You know, I'll get these stockbrokers and financial people. You know, they're always pitching me on, hey, 
can I manage your money? You know, I don't have any money. <laughs> like, why would I put anything in anything else? You know, I'm all in uh, <laughs> in, in real estate. It's 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 simple, but it, it's you know, I just think it, it's a better long term uh, payoff. In all these years, even though uh, we've been through some economic cycles. One thing I never see go that much on sale is real estate. You know, you're thinking in some kind of financial crash, it's all going to be cheap. It doesn't really get any cheaper. Yeah. People just hunker down and, and hang tight. Well, what I always say on that subject is, you know, I remember 2008 and I don't recall my rent going down. <laughs> you know? No, it didn't. It didn't. <laughs> so as, as long as you have long-term fixed debt, it doesn't really matter what the economy does because your rents are still going to keep coming in and it'll eventually turn around. Yeah. Hey, now, it can get competitive. So, the word on the street from a lot of my landlord friends is their units are staying vacant longer than they ever remember. Um, yeah. Because you're, you're, there's nothing to stop overbuilding. Right. You know, and there's big money players out there building, you know, huge two and three and four hundred unit complexes and tons of amenities and see them popping up everywhere yeah so so you know that does have an effect it Mm -hmm. just softens up a little bit and uh, you know like we were saying just a minute ago you do have mortgage payments and tax and insurance that has to be paid no matter what when you start running an extra five or ten percent vacancy that that was your gravy you know Mm -hmm. that's that's the money that's not there so when the when the market gets uh, overbuilt, you are going to suffer. You know, especially in my case, my units are older, mm-hmm. and um, you know, a lot of the young people, millennials and stuff, man, they want everything brand new. Yeah, and, and even if you buy something brand new, for people who like brand new, it's going to be old in five it, years. Yeah, five <laughs> years, you ain't brand new anymore. <laughs> right. uh, you know, my competitive advantage is. The stuff is older and it has charm. You know, it's yeah. real wood floors and things like that. So, uh, and and you know, they don't rent for as much as as, as the new units are, are renting for. So, I kind of have a my position myself in in this mid tier mar- market of, you know, somebody even with a uh, a job that doesn't pay that well right. can still afford to 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 rent from me. Right. But but I'm I'm running with more vacancies than than I'm used to. And um, and for longer periods yeah. of time, and you know it just forces me to have to go in. Uh, in this last two years, I've really started just going in and uh, upgrading the units, redoing, putting nice tile in in the tub surrounds, glass block windows, redoing all the kitchen countertops, and I really probably have to go through all go through them all again, and and even upgrade them a little more. You know, dishwashers sure. people. Are demanding, you know, dishwashers. Not and some people have dishwasher. Who doesn't have a dishwasher? <laughs> you know, back in in the forties when they built these these buildings that I own, most of them, nobody had a dishwasher. Right. You know, they actually didn't even have showers. You know, tubs just had tub faucets. Now those have been added before sure. I got to them, but you know, times change and people just want more and more and, and you know luxury, um, and and you got to keep up. With, with what everybody else has. Otherwise, you, you will fall behind. And if you end up running with 10, 15, 20% vacancy rates, it's going to be hard-pressed to turn any kind of positive sure. cash flow. So you've got to run a tight ship, and you got to stay current. And, uh, and yeah, going back to 
take care of people. Good deal. So, what's next for you? You know, I haven't. Um, well, you, you had asked earlier about the the commercial property. Um, you know, I my wife was uh, antiques dealer, and she mm-hmm. was just renting space for somebody uh, to to have a little antique booth. And the building she was in came up for sale, and um, we talked about you know, would you want to go from owning you know renting just one booth and having no headaches? You just pop in there and. It's very similar to my salon concept, and she was a tenant, you know, in something like that, just renting space to sell antiques. And she she was up for actually running the whole antique store. So we ended up uh, purchasing this little collection of buildings along Government Street, and mm-hmm. uh, she kept three of them uh, for her antique store. About seven, those add up to about seven thousand square feet. And then there were two other. Buildings that were adjacent that we just rented out as off one is office space and one's being uh, converted into a like a little local bar right, as we speak and that was really her project to mm-hmm. to get into it but man the there's so many less headaches about doing commercial triple net leases it's just you know you got a business owner who understands the way the game is played you know yeah. and and you can make your lease. Anything that two people are willing to, to negotiate. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is, you know, one tenant signed a five-year lease, another one wanted a 10-year lease. And, mm-hmm. man, just to get a tenant, <laughs> you don't have to worry about them for five or 10 years. I mean, yeah. you still got to maybe make sure the roof doesn't leak. But uh, if anything, I would entertain selling some of the, the older buildings and rolling them into commercial mm-hmm. because... Uh, you do get tired of fixing property. Yeah. You know, uh, they say everybody does eventually become a don't wanter. And I was like, what are you talking about? But <laughs> I, I, you know, 20 or 30 years of taking care of property and tenants moving in and out, it does wear on you. Yeah. Um, and so if I could flip them into something less headaches, even if the cash flow wasn't as good. Oh, sure. Uh, um, I'd entertain that. But, I'm not aggressively going after it. Uh, you know, at some point, how much do you need? Yeah. You know, I mean, some people have big visions, <laughs> but it's uh, it's enough for me, what yeah. I have right now. Good deal. So, I, I just have three real quick questions, and then we can move on, because I know you want to talk about, about your program. The The... We call it the radio round, the questions we just ask everybody that's on the letter. Let our guests get to know you a little bit. Let our listeners get to know you a little bit better. First one, what's your favorite book? Well, I guess let's stick to real estate. It's going to have to be Rich Dad, Poor Dad Yeah, you know, from, from that point of view because uh, yeah, the lessons in there are just so fundamental. Absolutely. You, you have to. I'm sure everyone on here has listened to it. If not, go get it today. <laughs> Absolutely. Couldn't agree with you more. What's your favorite quote? A life of ease is a difficult pursuit. A life of ease is a difficult... Who is that? You know, I think it's a guy named Montesquieu, but I'm not 100% sure. But that, that quote just sticks in my head because my goal has, was always to live a life of ease. and Yeah. It ain't easy. <laughs> <laughs> Ironic. <laughs> so what's your favorite thing to do when you're not working? Favorite thing to do when I'm not working, besides take a nap, um, I really have gotten to the point of uh, enjoying my family. Uh, yeah. 
I have a 21-year-old daughter, 18-year-old son, and a 13-year-old daughter, and they really just ground me. And uh, we started cooking together. You know, I wanted to get the kids off the computer and off their phone and, you know, out of their room. Uh, teenagers today, they just sure. come home, they go straight into their room. You don't have to worry about this yet, but <laughs> they go straight into their room and, you know, they barely come out. Yeah. And uh, so we started uh, knocking on their door and saying, okay, are you on the cooking team or are you on the cleaning team? And, you, <laughs> and you're either going to cook or you're going to clean. And, uh, you know, my son really ended up turning out, he was just like a great cook and, and didn't know it. Now he's like, you know, thinks he can make things better than me. You know, <laughs> yes. he's like, yeah, dad, move aside. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get in there. And just the interaction, you know, going to the grocery store uh, together, getting it. Um, being in there cooking with him, listening to a little music. You know, everybody comes out for a family dinner. I know that's not as popular as it used to be. And then, you know, my wife and, and whoever chose not to be on the cook team, they go in after and clean. And, you know, it's simple, but that is a damn good time, uh, especially as your kids are getting older and you're realizing they're not going to be around much longer. Gotcha. Well, they're going to be around longer than you. Well, I mean, around my gosh. <laughs> you know, hopefully. I know some people have kids staying at home till their 30s, but I always intended mine to leave at 18. So I'm thinking, yeah, this is down to the last wire on that. Well, this has been an awesome show. Can you tell us about uh, Man Up? Tell us about about how you stumbled upon the concept. Because I, I've heard you tell the story before, and it was kind of real estate related. Um, and, and then kind of where you're going and where people can find you. Okay, I appreciate that, Sterling. So the bottom line is this. You know, my dream early on was to get to the point where I had enough passive income that I didn't have to do anything. I mean, to me, that was always... It's everybody's dream. It, yeah. Isn't it the American dream? I always thought this is what it's all about. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the age of 48, so that's 12 years into that, you know, real estate career... I really had that, you know, mm -hmm. uh, I had enough passive income from both the salon and um, the 60 plus, you know, rental units that I didn't have to leave the house uh, and, and do anything. And I had the system set up where, you know, somebody taking care of everything. I, I managed the property myself for 10 years and then I hired a, um, my own property manager, you know, to, to run it after that. And, uh, so I never had to leave, leave the house, but I found myself um, miserable. When I finally achieved my dream and had really nothing to do, I said, well, what do you do with yourself? Yeah. You know, what, what do you do? And uh, I was grouchy and irritable. And, uh, you know, my wife would be like, stay away from daddy. He's grouchy <laughs> today. And uh, I said, why am I so damn grouchy? You know, my dreams have all come true. I'm only 48 years old at the time where I'm realizing this. And I was just miserable. And I said, you know, I can sort of delude myself and think that what's separating me from happiness is another five or 10 grand a month. And, you know, I can hustle and go and buy more real estate or whatever. And I could get the other five or 10 grand a month. But the truth of it is, I'm just going to be older, you know, 10 years down the road. And I'm suspicious that I'm still going to be miserable because there's some other missing ingredient that I'm, I'm not seeing. I said, so instead of going that route, I do have enough to live comfortably. I don't have a jet plane or anything, but uh, there's nothing that I can't get if I, if I want it. Uh, I'm going to spend the next 10 years 
figuring out well, what 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 makes a person happy like what is the secret because it's obviously not just getting enough passive income to sure. not have to do anything and um so i i sort of checked out became a self-help junkie and um tried to figure out the answer and um you know uh, i read a quote i think it was t harv eckery uh who's it may not be him but since sometimes wealth has a way of, of shining a light on, on your inner poverty. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and really, it was, I was just unfulfilled. Mm-hmm. You know, what I was doing didn't have any sort of contribution, or I didn't see it at the time as, as a contribution. And it had no meaning. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, so what if you own 100 apartment units? Like, what, what are you really doing with your life? You know, if, if, you, if you die, no one's even going to really miss you. Your tenants are just going to make the check out to somebody, somebody else. else. Somebody else, somebody steps in. You know, what, what did you really, really do here? And so I started basically changing myself. Mm-hmm. And I felt better pretty quick. All those books I was reading ended up saying the same thing, you know, that really, in order to, to, to be happy and change, you don't move the pieces around on the chessboard. You don't get more apartment units or make more money. You, you change the way you think. And, you know, delving into that three or four months, you know, my wife said, yeah, I don't know what you're doing, but whatever it is, keep doing it. And uh, I noticed when I went back out into the world and I'm sitting at a gymnastics practice, you know, for my son and I'm talking to some of the other dads. They all said similar things to me. It's like, yeah, I had my best year last year, but man, I'm, I'm just not in a good place. I just found it over and over. Guys were saying that and they sounded just like I I was think what I was thinking. And, you know, I didn't, it's not something that you usually want to share or, or talk about sure. with friends. You know, people think you're doing fantastic, but, um, you know, the truth of it is a lot of people are suffering, you know, silently because it's just not something you know, normally talk about. Is that, man, this, you know, there's a missing component, a missing ingredient. And so I would start to speak to these guys and say, hey, man, you can do something about it. But, you know, we only have a, an hour or so there, and I couldn't really get the, the whole philosophy across, across. Of, of what I was trying to explain to them. And so a few years later after... Um, becoming a professional speaker at the uh, National Speakers Association and, and trying to do it in a speech, I, uh, I came across the idea of just doing a retreat, a three-day immersion retreat. I said, that's enough time I can really get these ideas across to, mm-hmm. to someone. Um, and, 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 you know, without going into a whole other podcast, it's essentially, you know, we create our own life experience by... Uh, and, and this goes back to some Tony Robbins lessons that being being able to focus on what you choose to focus on and then assigning the meaning to whatever the thoughts are coming in from what you're focusing on. You know, we're the ones who decide what something means to us, no right. one else. Uh, and it's it's like self-mastery. It's taking control over your, your own thoughts and mindset. And uh, I started feeling good about it. And then these guys would come to these weekends and, and I, I do exclusively work with men because uh, I do, uh, I know it's not cool to say these days, but 
but men are, are underserved in this department. Um, mm-hmm. Women do reach out to each other and they're open for help and support from each other. And they, 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 they form groups, you know, and they, and they yeah. share. Men don't typically, we, we get together, we talk about sports and, um, you know, uh, women's sports, you know, that sort of thing. Right. We never really get to, to other stuff. And so I, I started doing these men's retreats and men, you know, so, uh, in a weekend, I could really give them some new insights and they, they would go out feeling re-energized and a little bit more clear about their direction. And in essence, coming up with a little bit more meaning or stepping into something that has more meaning than just making money. Yeah. And so now I've been doing that for three years and it's my, it's my contribution project, you know, to, uh, to give back to, to my community by sharing really just the wisdom that I learned from, you know, books and other people and experience. Awesome. Well, I've heard some raving reviews about the program and I've been meaning to come check it out personally. How can our listeners get in touch with you if they're interested? So you can look up my website is uh, manup.net and that'll take you to my story. And at the bottom, there's a little secret button that says man camp. And that's what we call the three day retreats. And you can, uh, Scroll down all the way to the bottom, and if you find Man Camp, you click on that, it'll take you to a little secret web page where some guys are talking about why they came and, and what, what happened for them. And uh, it's just like a really still at the beginning stages of a growing movement, but uh, so far, everybody loves it. Awesome. Well, Albert, thank you so much for joining us today. I learned a ton and I really enjoyed your story, and I know that all of our listeners will too. All right. Thank you, Sterling. Thanks for tuning in to the Rent Roll Radio Show brought to you by Cressworth Capital. We hope you enjoyed the show, and if you did, please hit the subscribe button and leave us a rating and review. You can also visit us at CrestworthCapital.com or RentRollRadio.com or follow us on Facebook at Rent Roll Radio or at Crestworth Capital. If you would like to reach us, feel free to shoot us an email at info at rentrollradio.com or sterling at crestwordcapital.com. We hope you come back next week to join us on some more of our journey. Until then, happy investing.